as we record here, this is a weird moment for me because this is our this is our wedding anniversary that we're going to be celebrating in quarantine. How many years? Uh, this will be eleven. Oh, okay. That's that's great. Yeah, we did ten um, this year. Now, what did you guys do? Because I mean, it's like this is the thing: is we can't go to a show, we can't go to dinner. You know, like it's it's like it's like how do you how do you mark the day? Um, we ordered in, but we ordered in something that we wouldn't normally get. So we found uh, this barbecue joint okay that was in our area that we'd never heard of and we just ordered a bunch of stuff and then it was actually like really great and it was just kind of a chill you know we made it this far and we'll continue to keep on going okay. like you know just to kind of enjoy being around each other even though that's I mean, that's us, a, that's for a us it, was, it was earlier in the lockdown period right right still, uh, See that—that's the thing—is like we can we can enjoy each other's company tonight and everything, but it's like you know you know we we're 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 two hundred days into this, so it's it's mostly what we've been doing is enjoying each other's company. I'm sure we'll think of something, but we we both decided um, just for like stress reasons and economic reasons that we would like both uh, agree to keep it small this year. So it's like it's like we'll you know we'll get back to doing something big and gifts and all that stuff in the future. This year we're just going to keep it subdued, but it's just. I'm here on the morning of, and it just see. I'm like, I think this might be too subdued. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 245 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. You know, we're lucky. No, really, we're lucky. We've been stuck in this situation for more than 200 days, but we're stuck in 2020. This is a year where we can have meals and groceries ordered from our phones and delivered to our homes. This is a year where we've been able to keep up with our friends thanks to fast networks and cameras built into our hardware. It's a year where we can even keep watching new movies thanks to content that comes right into our living rooms. I mean, I didn't think I'd be able to get back to the regular format of this show in 2020, but here we are with new titles to talk about. I'm even lucky that I can get today's guest on the show because life for him stuck at home with two small kids is much different than isolation for me. So along with feeling lucky, I feel grateful this morning that I can have him on the show. He is the brains behind the Changing Reels podcast, a podcast that celebrates diversity and representation in cinema. He's head cheese over at Cinema Axis and a very, very good friend. Courtney Small is here. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me, and you know, thank you for sharing a bit of your anniversary date to, uh, to chat with me. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was worried about cutting into the day when I was like mapping out the show, but I'm like, ah, I record in the morning. She'll be, she'll still be asleep. It's fine. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try and make this as quick as possible. Adam boy. Even my wife, as much as she's uh, condones my moving loving habits, would would not have that. So right, there we go. <laughs> On episode 245, we will be discussing the trial of the Chicago. Chicago 7 will be flipping the record over to play the other side, but first we need to learn more about Courtney. This is Know Your Enemy. Courtney first appeared on episode 75. That was the 2012 year-end episode. We learned the first film he'd ever seen in a theater is the animated Transformers movie. The last film he'd seen at the time was Django Unchained. The worst movie he's ever seen is Firewall. The unseen classic or essential is Birth of a Nation and Passion of Joan of Arc. Leading the question, I know you've seen Birth of a Nation. How about Passion of Joan of Arc? 
you know, it's before the year is done. <laughs> before 2020 is done. You did say that on the last episode, too. So it's, it's okay, pretty good. Before 2021. <laughs> good man. Uh, the film he wished he made is Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, Courtney returned on episode 128. We talked about Inherent Vice. We learned the film that everybody else hates that he likes is Too Fast, Too Furious. The film everybody else digs that he doesn't is Paths of Glory. The last film to make him cry is Dear Zachary. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Stephen James. And the movies he was watching next were Imitation Game and or Birdman, whichever caught his fancy first. Then on episode 204, we talked about Sorry to Bother You. Courtney told us that the film that made his love of cinema turn a corner is Farewell My Concubine. His first date movie uh, is Charlie's Angels, uh, kind of a recurring theme of a movie to put on during a first date. His sick day movie is The Nice Guys. The last film to leave him speechless is What Will People Say? And his epitaph would be, the good book says we might be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. That's from Magnolia. Finally, last year, and it seems like about six years ago now, episode 228, we talked about The Farewell. The film Courtney loves but never wants to watch again is something called Farming. The film that genuinely freaked him out is Carrie. The film that always makes him laugh is Old School. The, the movie soundtrack that is Courtney's favorite is Magnolia, the Amy Mann album that inspired the Paul Thomas Anderson film. And the film he loves that nobody else has heard of is something called Flirting. So it's time for round five. Courtney, you are officially a five-timer. When you go to the theater, when it is, of course, safe to go to the theater, where do you like to sit? See, this one is tricky because depending on the theater but i will say as a general rule i try and sit closer to the screen and that's because i try to avoid as many cell phones as possible <laughs> you know uh, like you're reminding me that there are some uh silver linings to this to this lockdown experience that we're in and one of those is that i have not been annoyed by a cell phone in a theater in a very long time yep <laughs> we we tend to have, um, I guess, revisionist history yep. on a lot of things. Like when I keep seeing people put articles about how great Blockbuster was. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned like being close to the screen to to avoid cell phones. Is this kind of a move you've made over time? Like you used to sit further back, and it's like, okay, now I got to get down close, otherwise it's going to be annoying. Yeah, it's more reactionary. Um, mm. I was never one that had to be in the middle of the theater. Okay. Uh, I learned early on that. Being in the middle of theaters where pretty much most of the annoying people are. Because everyone, <laughs> no matter how late they come, everyone wants that perfect seat in the mm -hmm. middle. So I got used to just sitting wherever. And there's a period where, you know, depending on the theater, I'll even sit like in the the main level walkway row. Right. Where they have like the accessibility seating. Yeah, um, yeah. Usually there's some seats in between those that the regular customers can use just because you get the leg room. But yeah. Oh, yeah. No, as I'm, I'm a big more believer people are using cell phones and as theaters have adapted different type of cell phone interactive things you know mm -hmm. i'm not gonna knock what we have up here time play it's it's fine whatever it's but <laughs> i just find throughout the movie i would see people checking their phone or getting a thing or sending a tweet and especially if i'm watching a movie with 3d as a person who's already annoyed having to wear 3d glasses on top of my glasses yeah then i would see those lights pop up all over the place or yeah. sitting beside someone and the light pops up i for whereas if the closer i get to the screen the less those people want to be yeah it's, spot, so. it's uh you know so it's, it's it's a practical solution i like it uh courtney if you could go on a date with any movie character who would you choose so this one was an interesting question because i was initially going to um 
mention Thandi Newton's character in that film, Flirting, which you oh. mentioned earlier. But then I realized that that character is a high school student. And <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be weird. And then, so I was, so then I chose Monica Wright from Love and Basketball, but then I remembered she was kind of in college for most of that film. So I'm going to say Monica Wright after she's gone through that whole experience. When she becomes a player in the W. Exactly. I mean, you know, nobody would blame you for, for, for you know, saying, I want to I wanna go out with a WNBA player. Yeah, and I mean, she's, she's just a really interesting character. Like, she, she's smart, she's extremely talented um, with her athleticism, and She's just a really, she's the type of personality that you'd want to hang out with. Like you could see why characters would fall in love with her. It has been quite some time since I watched Love and Basketball. Um, I, I saw it when it first came out, and I don't think I've come back to it since. Um, you're, you're talking, of course, about the movie from 2000, directed by Gina Prince Blythewood. Yeah. Um, Omar Epps and uh, Sanal Athan are the are the two main leads, and they play college basketball players who have a relationship um, while both, you know they're both stars on the rise and there's there's all kinds of things that are 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 at play here one of them of course being you know confidence and ego when you're talking about two mm -hmm. pro athletes and isn't there one point in the movie where there's a game of one-on-one -on -one, like a la strip poker yep you know like yeah, they're basically playing a game of horse yeah and it's one of those really sexy and romantic scenes mm -hmm. done in such an unconventional way yeah um it Again, this is going to, some people will roll their eyes, but it makes me think of also, uh, and I believe it was Fast and Furious 6, because <laughs> you know, you know, I love that. But there's a I scene do. in that, there's a scene in that movie where um, Vin Diesel's Dominic Toretto and Michelle Rodriguez's Letty are having this street race. Yeah. And she doesn't quite remember who he is, but the way that that race is filmed, it's almost like this kind of flirtatious, romantic interplay that you can only get that connection through lovers but it's done via two cars racing right and it's one of the few times in that franchise where you're like that's a really interesting and deep moment right that kind of shows you the power of love and i think the it works you know obviously love and basketball did it first but it's just i, I like when films find unique ways to to show that passion without just being simple standing in the rain yeah loves type scenes yeah, it's 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 courtship and seduction with something at its core, right? Whether like I mean, it, it's you could go all the way back to something like Annie got her gun, um, and, and you know, and, and when you've got like Annie Oakley like in a shooting contest, yep. it's it's it, it's great. And yeah, you're right, um, Monica Wright in that movie, the, that character is just so well drawn, um, you know, and and her back and forth with Quincy is just so great you're making me want to rewatch this movie something fierce uh we were talking about this before show so i'm curious where you decided to land courtney small what is the dirtiest film you've ever seen so this one i'm going to go with pink flamingos and john walters it's not even it's for me it's really just the ending scene the the infamous <laughs> yeah closer and Everything that those characters go through is already on a certain level of disgust. But the fact that this person eats something that people don't normally eat. And even you would think, okay, it's fake, but it's nope. real. Yep. And that was one of those moments that... like, There's very few moments in cinema that have kind of just grossed me out. And that one 
gives me just the the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it mm-hmm. it's it's funny because you're you're talking about uh you're talking about a household where john waters is is worshipped um and i've i've seen like i've listened to the guy do uh like an in conversation at tiff i've seen um gallery shows that he's curated um and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing and i've seen a few of his films but man does so some of those early ones really scare me um because he was just basically out there, like i mean it's sweet in a way because he was just out there with his friends to have a lark and make something that would amuse just them like i yep. gotta believe that you know John Waters and Divine and and that whole crew, they really didn't intend for Pink Flamingos to be something that we'd be talking about 40 years later. You know, they just thought they were going to make some little thing that was going to play in their little rep theater and maybe get a few, you know, midnight double feature shows. But that was it, you know? So they were just spitballing any create and i mean almost literally spitballing any crazy idea they could think of of what what else could we put on film what else could we put like what else could we get into the story and i mean your you know your choice here it says something that neither one of us really actually want to describe what we're like what it is you're you're getting at it like we're both like you know just look it up for yourself i like john Waters. i I love Serial Mom. It's, it's one of those that I just love going back to. Mm-hmm. I think his films are entertaining. I I like that he was able to have something like Pink Flamingos made. It's you know, but it's, it's for me, it's not an easy film to watch, just because there's so many moments where you kind of cringe, and then that final moment, you're like, okay, you didn't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trippy thing when a film does something like that right at the end. Yeah, and I think I also because I I have just in a version to public restrooms and stuff like that yeah. anyway yeah. another film i was gonna mention about but it, it uses obviously fake stuff was this film um, nairobi half-life i believe it's from nigeria that okay. tom teaker who did run lola run right he created a i guess a production company slash learning center in africa to help kind of create and foster filmmakers so this was one of the first films that came out it's a really great film but one of the characters early on gets thrown in prison and it's just a it's this big kind of communal prison that men and women are in and he's get tasked with cleaning up the restroom and it's it is absolutely disgusting. It's the the dirtiest bathroom I've ever seen oh, on man. screen. Like worse than worse than train spotting. <laughs> um, and even that, I was thinking about like I'm like oh, yes, that's fake, and that still kind of grossed me out. But just you gotta go, yeah, you gotta go with flamingos because if nothing else, we know it's real. The other yeah. two, the other ones are just really good production design. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's get that. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> um, Courtney Small, what is your favorite black and white film? Um, you know what? I'm gonna go with Double Indemnity. Uh, it's it, I don't think it's the best looking black and white film, but I just really love that film. It's it's one that I came to later in life um back during the the blind spotting days and that's kind of just stuck with me i mean it's kind of the film noir you know what i mean like every every time uh november is kind of coming around and usually that's when people uh like watch a lot of film noir for noir november that was started by mm-hmm. friend of the show mariah e gates and when people are looking for film noirs to watch usually that's kind of one of the first ones that gets recommended so if nothing else even though it's not as showy 
as something like Bob Turnbull on the last episode mentioned Night of the Hunter, which is a very, very showy use of black and white. Double Indemnity isn't nearly as showy, but at the very least, first of all, you know, you could see why it would be somebody's favorite because the story in it is just so damn cool, but it it just, it suits that story so well. I, I can't imagine seeing the story of uh walter ness in color yeah it, it wouldn't have the same appeal and, and i think because it's done in black and white you get to observe the subtle camera movements mm-hmm. a little more like i think i like it because i i see the craft in terms of the writing of the script the just the overall how it was pieced together whereas colorize i think you would lose some of that. You would probably just focus more on the story and not necessarily the way how he, he places the camera in certain scenes and the, the the cuts that are used. So I don't know. I think it's it's just a fascinating film that is endlessly watchable. It's it's two main leads, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. They look so good in black and white. I don't think I've never seen either one of them in color. I kind of don't want to, um, but they both the 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 grayscale just really brings out their natural uh charisma in both cases like mm-hmm. and, and and in in some ways you know the 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 depths of their nefariousness yep good choice man no i i, I like i like interpretations on that answer like some people have just said it's just my favorite movie full stop so i'm just going to take use this opportunity to talk about it other people have said like the camera work in in it i i just like the you know kind of like all of these questions i like the way that people choose to interpret it so very well done uh but last but not least for now what is a film courtney small that you enjoy that nobody would expect you to actually like so there are many. Uh, my <laughs> taste often veers off a lot of people's taste, but I'm actually going to go with the film Spy, uh, starring Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> okay. I don't think a lot of people would associate me with that movie, but I absolutely love that movie. That is a movie that I don't have it in my collection yet, and I don't know why. And I think it's partly because whenever it's on TV, I just stop and watch, and I, I just kind of feel like, oh, it'll be on TV in the next couple of weeks, but I absolutely love that movie. It's, it's a... James Bond spoof. We've seen many of them before, but I think Melissa McCarthy is so great in it. I think it's one of her underrated um, performances. And even way how they incorporate Jason Statham's character, it's still, even though they're making for the spy genre, it's still an entertaining and satisfying spy movie on, in its own right. And I just absolutely love it. You know, one of the things I love about Spy is it's never mean towards melissa mccarthy like she's playing she starts out that movie i mean first of all the one thing i love about the movie is it shows how truly capable she is as an intelligence agent like she's clumsy but Mm -hmm. she's still very very deft at her job in terms of actually being an intelligence agent but when you get to somebody who looks like melissa mccarthy does there are a lot of movies out there that can be really really mean about her appearance it it never goes there it'll it'll take shots at you know kind of her attitude and her wardrobe and that kind of thing but it never gets mean about her as a person well there's a lot of films especially in her catalog that really downplay her appearance or make her look hideous and in this film there is a running gag that a lot of this the undercover stuff they gave her, they try and put her in that frumpy 
kind of look. But by the right. end of the film, she's still that confident, you know, attractive woman chasing down the cops and still, as you said, very talented and capable at her job. Like you never feel that she wouldn't be able to succeed in the mission. Yeah. She's yeah. just, she's just, others have been trying to put her in a box and that's really what the, the problem is. It's not necessarily her herself. It's just the, the system that she's trying to evolving. In. And yeah, I think it works. Like I've, I've been a fan of Melissa McCarthy since I guess the nines. Yeah. Maybe that was my earliest memory of, of seeing her. Uh, and I've always thought that she was just a, a great actress. And then obviously she blew up doing more of the kind of Chris Farley style. Probably, yeah. but, but I've liked that her career has kind of evolved back where people realize, no, she's, she's really a talented actress. She can, she can do it all. Yeah. I'm, I'm really hopeful that movies like, um, can you ever forgive me? And even what she yep. was able to do in the kitchen will have people looking at her in a, in a different way. I mean, she is probably just content as can be to do movies like spy the rest of her career and, you know, and, and, and get, get paid and make more movies and, and, you know, rise up the ranks. Like I know she and her husband now are producers so they can, you know, use this exposure and this money to make other films. Um, I mean, the other cool thing about spy is anytime you get Rose Byrne in a movie, I'm interested. She's one of those actors who she's in a movie and you have my attention. She, you know, don't get me wrong. She can make some junk, but you know, at the very least you put her in the movie and it's like, Oh, I'll give that, I'll give that a look. I, I can't say that I'm necessarily going to like stop flipping channels of spies on, but uh, I, I certainly wouldn't have expected that to be your answer. So well played. Yeah, no, no, that is a, that is a channel stopper right there. Very nice. All right. There's more about Courtney We'll learn more about him next time he's on. But for now we have a movie to talk about uh, Netflix release that you can watch right now from the comfort of your couch and uh, not have to go out into the pandemic infested world. We are going to talk about the trial of the Chicago seven right after this. It's the new slang. So come on back. Trial of the Chicago 7 was directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. It stars Eddie Redmayne, Jeremy Strong, Sasha Baron Cohen, John Carroll Lynch, Yahia Abdul-Mateen, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Alex Sharp, Frank Langella, and many, many others. In 1968, the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago. It went badly. Very badly. Over 600 arrests, over 400 injuries to protesters, almost 200 cops injured as well. Over four days and nights of protests and riots outside. Two whole years later, America had a new president and he wanted to lay some blame for the unrest that took place in Chicago. So it is that U.S. Attorney Richard Schultz, that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is handed the files of the so-called Chicago 7. Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, John Freunds and Lee Weiner. Just for good measure, Bobby Seale is lumped in. So begins a trial to punish radicals and revolutionaries without regard for due process or constitutional rights. Screenwriter Aaron Sorkin's words have been used for some very sharp movies. Titles like The Social Network and Moneyball have demonstrated the way that Sorkin can cut to the core of real events and find the humanity in stories of game-changing moments in history. However, there's a balance that must be struck between showmanship and soul 
Otherwise, you lose the heart of a script trying to show off too hard. So pop quiz, Hotshot. With the trial of the Chicago 7, does Sorkin tilt the scales towards showmanship, or does he tilt them towards soul? I would say that he keeps the scales even. I think it's yeah. more towards soul than showmanship. I think Sorkin's strength is showmanship. Um, and this material doesn't allow for it. Interesting. I disagree. I was watching this movie and finding that he often didn't trust the story or his own script. I mean, it's it's crazy that we're, you know, there's not a whole lot of writer-directors these days. Like film, I feel film is becoming more and more of a collaborative process. There's a, there's a handful, of course, who still write their own script or co-write their own scripts, but it's... Um, it's it's less and less an auteur medium as time goes on. Um, so Sorkin, I mean Sorkin. First of all, we're talking about a screenwriter who's now directing. Like he started out just writing, and now he's stepping behind the camera too. I, I found there were a lot of moments where he felt like he needed to give his script more flash. There's several moments where the script cuts back and forth between the events themselves, the recount of the events in the trial and abby hoffman doing stand-up and it go and it mm -hmm. cuts and it flips and it flips and it flips and it's like i wonder if you could have got a better impact or or a deeper impact just by sticking on one of those three just by showing me the riot let abby tell it or stay in the courtroom but a few times over it does this little three points of view at the same time and i i was wondering why First of all, just the moments themselves are powerful in, in their own rights. You know, like this is a fascinating story, top to bottom. There's no denying that. But I didn't feel as though Sorkin needed to really sex it up, in, aside from him wanting to show off a little bit more. I didn't really associate that with showing off as much as I just felt it was slightly uneven because I felt the Hoffman telling the story part comes in too late mm -hmm. into the film mm -hmm. I, I believe it's like maybe 20 minutes or something but how they however they set it up it was just like oh wait now he's telling this story like where, where he's doing stand up like he, it just kind of comes out of the blue that he's recounting these events and then you realize okay everything has happened so he's telling you years later but it doesn't quite flow as well with the with the other parts and for for me i felt like he when he was recounting some of the, the trial scenes and even uh, some of the events that were happening, that's, there was moments where you could easily tell, it's like, all right, this is him punching it up. Like when he's talking about the, how Hayden uses, uh, was it progressive pronouns? Yeah. Or the character, um, I think it was Jerry, Jerry Rubin talking about his love for this undercover cop, even though they were only together for <laughs> hours or something. Right. Like, you know, there's a lot of moments where, it's like, oh, okay, here's a Sorkin moment. Oh, here's a Sorkin moment. So, like, that, to me, kind of broke up the, the flow a bit. But then I also felt that this film follows a fairly traditional telling. And especially because it covers... The trial itself was so long that it really tried to keep as much um, of what happened as possible, which kind of hinders him from doing a lot of his zippy one-liners and back and forth you're, you're you're showing the length of the trial but also how the important events 
that happened leading up to it. So I think it was tough for him to balance. And I would also say that I enjoyed the film, but I I don't feel it's a film that is going to be as impactful as Sorkin wants it to be. No, it's, no, and especially in this this era. Yeah, I mean that that's that's certainly the thing is you can tell as this movie begins to unfold that Sorkin and the producers are trying to you know talk about the present through the lens of the past and it's not it's not sharp enough for that because for like life was different the the reason why these people were arrested and and targeted is very different than the reason why people now are being arrested and targeted the nature of their clash with the police is different than the nature of current clashes between protesters and police uh you know not to mention the fact that a lot of the time clashes between protesters and police is because of the police these days um Mm -hmm. and you can you can really see that when it comes to a story like this the question i always ask is why now why do you want to tell that story in this moment and you're right it's it's clearly wanting to draw parallels between a previous time of civil unrest in america and the current moment of civil unrest in america and around the world you know i liked this movie listen it's a low bar right now to be honest i'm we're just so starved for new content that i come to anything with any kind of flash and promise just frothing at the mouth waiting for it to be citizen kane uh including a movie that's coming about citizen kane i i liked this movie it made for like a perfectly enjoyable friday night but if i'm putting my critics hat on and really kind of pulling it apart and whatnot it's just okay i'm I'm more on it than you were but i i have issues with okay it. like i was i was entertained i i do think it serves a purpose i do think there are a lot more similarities um than i think you felt there were okay. in terms of the the conflict and the the reasons behind the conflict I, if anything i felt like this film shows that not a lot has really changed where i struggle with it in terms of not having the the big impact is in how it's told and the fact that they decide to tell this story yet again, because I know I remember seeing a documentary, an animated documentary. I think it was in the early 2000s or maybe 2007. Uh, Brett Morgan did a documentary called the Chicago 10 um, speak your piece. And it was an animated documentary where he had people like Hank Azaria and Mark Ruffalo recounting some of the testimony. And I think mm. Jeffrey Wright was one of the actors. Yeah. It's a very interesting film. Sorkin's problem is he, wants a film that essentially upholds institutions but just wants people to kind of get all the bad people out of the institution and in many ways i felt like from the beginning the institution was already flawed they were talking about how the institutions are that create america and you know america is great because you know our institutions are great we just have really flawed people in it and i'm thinking the problem with this film is this film wants to make you kind of stand up and cheer for the Chicago 8 or the Chicago 7, depending on what part of the events you, you want to follow. But Hayden is a character that he works, he struggles hard to kind of make a redeemable heroic figure. Yeah. You know, he's the one that at the end you stand up and cheer. And I feel like Hayden is part of the problem. You know, he you have people who want to evoke change but want to evoke change by maintaining the structures 
that are impeding change. Mm. Whereas someone like Hoffman, Sacha Baron Cohen's character, yes, he's kind of the zany hippie. He's you know the the jokey one, but early on in the film, you realize this guy's actually quite smart. He's he he makes a lot of sense. He's the first to realize we're not on trial because of our activism. There is politics behind this, yeah. you know, and even the whole makeup of how and who they're bringing in. But Hayden, you know, he, there's one part where even Hayden is trying to do a run-through mock um, trial in terms of how the prostitution will come at you. So they're trying to rehearse. And Hayden says, well, you know, at what point did I become the bad guy? And it's like, well, you kind of were already leaning that way because your ideas might have been great in terms of harmony and bringing freedom and equality. You still were approaching it from a way that left you comfortable. Yeah, you know, where your stakes were never as high. He shows up to court, clean cut and dressing, you know, being having served on a jury, you know, come to court, correct people. Like it, <laughs> you know, it, it does, it, it does make it does make a impact. You know, it images a lot of, of things with courts and how juries. It's yeah. Anyway, right. But he throughout the trial, like I looked at the, the advantages and privileges he got when they go to see Clark, who's played by Michael Keaton. I kept thinking, why was Hayden there? Yeah. You know, why would you bring a person who's on trial accused of this crime to speak with this person who's a potential witness? Yeah. None of the other guys got that, that chance. No, even the guys that were essentially there to be pawns, you knew there was no way they were going to let Bobby seals. No. do it. Yeah. You know, and just like that's what kind of annoyed me and even clark he, he that whole sequence i know what happened it's you know part of history whatnot but clark comes in like a a figure of i'm here to help you guys i know i know you're being railroaded but you sat on your privilege you kept that information without ever w- moving the needle you were waiting for them to come to you to ask for your help yeah even though you could have you know, like he was willing to let these people perish because, well, you just you didn't ask me. So there's a there's a lot of privilege that goes on in this film that Sorkin wants us to all rise up. You know, the war was was wrong. These people, you you need the right to protest. But then he also was kind of saying we need to follow Hayden and protest in a way that doesn't really upset the apple cart. It's like, well, the apple cart is rotten. So, okay. So this is why I love having people like Courtney Small on the show because you give me a lot to respond to all at once. Um, and again, so, I really, I, I really do like this film. Yeah. I just, um, I have issues. First of all, what you are talking about is the core of the story, which um, agreed that there is a lot going on in this story and a lot going on in the screenplay. Like I can talk about how much I don't think Sorkin trusts his own screenplay, but. On the page, the screenplay is well-written, and those ideas certainly do bubble forth. Like One of the points I was going to bring up is how this movie wants to have an argument about action. Um, you know, within like just within the core of the seven, the seven are, and we can even like we can really and truly expand it out to the eight because Bobby Seal is was and is lumped in there as an eighth. Let's put you honest just because they could. He had nothing to do with this, but the district attorney's like, you know what? He was in Chicago at the time. Bring him in, because if I can put him in jail, damn it, I'm gonna. Um, for all the normal reasons of Bobby Seale is a Black Panther, and it's Richard Nixon's attorney general, you do the math. And Seale is kept out 
of these conversations. Like the seven are locked together, kind of on their own reconnaissance too. Um, you know, if you want to talk about privilege, there's a there's a real dichotomy there. Seal keeps being trucked back to a prison cell, and the seven go back to this little hippie safe house in Lincoln Park. But they have arguments with themselves over action. And at some point, they're all correct. Hoffman and Jerry Rubin are doing things in a very, you know, prototypical 60s long haired anti establishment kind of way. Um, Tom Hayden and Randy Davis. Randy Davis, they are trying to actively move the needle in terms of political change and getting into this, getting themselves into the system so that they can try to dismantle the system from within. There's an argument at one point where, you know, um, Hayden and Hoffman are going back and forth about what happens the next time we have an election. And Hoffman is like, what does it matter? And Hayden says, that's all that matters. Now, on the one hand, you can say they're both right, you know, because Hoffman could say, we just put different people with the same agenda into office, whether they're left or right or further left or, you know, right leaning left. We just keep changing the pieces, but the game remains the same. Meanwhile, Hayden is saying, no, 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 you you, you, you went too far. We are changing the pieces. They're both correct. And they are having this argument as two people on the same side of political history. But that is the kind of thing that needs to happen. And and I don't feel like film addresses this enough. There are different ways to change the status quo. And they're not all incorrect, but the question always comes down to is what is going to change it most at any given moment? And that moment can change from day to day. The, the film that I think did this the best, and this is kind of where I'm going at in terms of execution, is I always come back to Selma by Ava DuVernay. Uh, because okay. because there was the conversations within the movement about what is the best way to do this. Like you, you had David Oyelowo and Stephen James having a conversation about what was the best way to protest, and it's something that's happening behind closed doors. It's something that's happening like within ranks. But you can see that the Freedom Writers wanted to do something very different than what King was putting forward, and you know that the that one side is going to win like they're not going to do both because that's just going to dilute the effect but within themselves it's like maybe we're not doing this right so it's fascinating to see that and and you're right like when the trial of the chicago seven goes there that's when it's at its best and it's it's funny because thinking back to to that scene and i think also part of the problem i had with with hayden was not so much his his ideology but his blindness to it because because he comes in from a place of superiority over Hoffman yeah uh, throughout the majority of the film and he in many ways doesn't as much as he's talking about affecting political change he doesn't really fully connect with the people he's representing because there's that powerful scene after um, Seals is released yeah uh, from this particular trial even though they've still trying to got a whole bunch of other things where they say all rise and six of them including the lawyers remain seated you know in solidarity Mm -hmm. with with seals after all he's gone through and hayden just gets up like normal you know he says oh it's a reflex a reflex to kind of respect the institutions i'm not saying that you have to be disrespectful or whatnot but it was just another example of how kind of out of touch with a lot of the people that he seemed he he was 
quote unquote fighting for. Yeah. To, to begin with, right? And and Hoffman, as much as Hoffman had disagreements with him, you re, you find out by especially by the end, Hoffman still had a level of respect for Hayden. He read all his works. He studied. He understood. Even though they disagreed, he took the time to try and get see his point of view. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hayden never really did that. No. Right. So I found that was kind, of, and I found Sorkin's kind of struggles to balance that out and make them equals. When for a lot of the films like that, but they're not they're not quite equals in how they're presented. And I understand, especially as Hayden said, and he made a very good point about how people like Hoffman, when they look back at that era, they're only going to think of free love hippies what have you they're not going to think of what they stood for and he's he's right you know that's how the narrative got turned but i also look in and think well not a lot has changed because if you're putting in people like hayden you're still not really pushing the needle and as we've seen with politics especially in american politics back in what 2018 you saw the most diverse group of candidates more women running more women of color have you and that's when you start to see change right like if you see people that are like hayden that can get arrested the next day for an event you know opposed to like he's already got certain he gets a certain level of respect that they would not have given hoffman or others and if you're already going in with a certain level of respect and you kind of understand the power that that respect comes with you're not gonna be as forceful in pushing some of the ideas that hoffman had that might be good ideas right like how they approach it is going to be different I, I agree every movement has conflict no one is there's no one monolith regardless of whatever political leanings you have and and conflict is good you need people that disagree with you i just felt sorkin struggled hard with that particular character who's such a, a focal point yeah, I mean, like, listen, it doesn't help that I don't know what accent Eddie Redmayne is doing, but it's very specific to him. I, I couldn't, I had real trouble with that one. I'm like, I know that you're doing some sort of accent, but it's not one I've ever heard. And I know it's certainly not the way you speak. Um, so it, it, it kept, especially in the early going, it kept bringing me out. Meanwhile, Sasha Baron Cohen, who is also a Brit, I never flinched at the way he speaks and he's playing a guy who was much more prominent, you know, who is much more uh, natural in front of a camera. I want to talk about Cohen for a second because Mm -hmm. for me, he was the standout of this movie. And you know, I don't think it hurts that he's kind of playing a version of himself, you know, like there, you can draw a line between Abby Hoffman and Sasha Baron Cohen. uh, And in terms, you know, one of the most obviously much more, uh, active in trying to suggest social change, whereas the other is trying to use satire as a way to, you know, change the way that we think about things. But what do you think about Cohen in this movie? Because I, I, you know, even though we're well removed for it, we're going to go back to it in a minute. Um, I think that everybody still kind of sees him as Borat. I think a lot of people still see him as the the jokester. Um, I kind of put him in the Melissa McCarthy camp of skilled comedic actors that can just deliver performances because at the beginning of this film you think yes he's just doing typical Sasha Baron Cohen but he brings a lot of quiet reverence to the <laughs> the character by the end you you feel deeply for him you know you realize that yes Hoffman's an intellectual and even when they were giving you like the little bios at the end like I, I felt really sad yeah <laughs> seeing because I, I forgot what happened 
yeah me too afterwards yeah and i was like oh i felt like you know he he does such a, a really good job and i i, I like the performances all over i didn't think um eddie redmayne was bad i mean he wasn't doing the jupiter ascending voice so anything that's not that is there is will fine be for me. no besmirching jupiter ascending on this show sir well, we, we we have our we all have our, our vices. <laughs> That's all I will say. We all have our unique vices. Yeah. But uh, I I thought Baron Cohen. He's one of those people that even when he's doing subtlety, people forget how hard it is to pull that type of role off because he has to be the jokester, the peacekeeper, the agitator, um, and the intellectual. You know, and and turn on those all on a dime. And he he pulls it off flawlessly. You know, you, obviously, just because of Hoffman's look and personality, even in, in the animated documentary, I, he was the one person I always remembered. Like, just the afro, the, the standout. He's just that personality. But yet, he was able to be such a, a broad personality, but not larger than life than the actual content at play. So I thought that was very well done. And it, I think it... it it helped with all the other actors. Like I even thought, um, oh, the character actor that played David Dillinger, whose name I'm forgetting. Oh, John Carroll Lynch. John Carroll Lynch, who's just he shows up. You're like, all right, you know, you're gonna get a good performance. Yeah. And even in his subtle everyman, you know, I'm just suburban dad. Like he was really. Like, I thought they were all quite good. I wish we had a little bit more of Lee and John. The, yeah, they don't give them enough to do. Which I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of fitting because they they admit right off the top they're like, you guys are here because they're gonna they're gonna let you two go. They you know they've got seven of us, but they they know they need to dial this down, so they're just lumping two in that they can let slide so that they can really hang the five of us. I wish there was we just got a little bit more of the person because they just kind of there, and I mean they offered some nice quippy moments, but I felt like they were just there to deliver the the circ. And isn't this absurd? Yeah. X yeah. Y oh, dot dot dot. Yeah, tell to They were good, and even um, the the lawyer, Mark Rylance. Uh, yes, Mark Rylance. He was phenomenal. Like he, how he came in and just the you you, you felt like you you were aging with him as mm-hmm. he keeps facing all these weird roadblocks and walls that just magically get put up in this ridiculous trial. I thought he also was gave a great supporting turn that you would kind of overlook with all, everything else that's going on in this film. Well, what I like about all, all those actors that you just mentioned, John Carroll Lynch, Mark Rylance, um, Noah Robbins, Daniel Flaherty, they all seem very workaday, you know, like, I mean, and really even truly like nobody in this movie is really, really gussied up into movie star charisma. Like I think the closest you maybe get in just the way he is really primly and properly put together is Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the prosecutor. But everybody else seems like somebody you might see at a bus stop. Even really and yeah. truly, even the way Sasha Baron Cohen is dressed in this movie and and you know and and styled. So that lends itself to the immersion of this story, which I think it, I got to give credit to that because you know the one thing that that must be said is. If this screenplay was not based on real events, you would not believe it. You know, like mm-hmm. this, the, there are a lot of really, really crazy things that happen during the riots, during the trial, and, you know, certainly during the fallout that you're like, 
are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You know, and, and just, you know, certainly this movie is holding no punches from Judge Julius Hoffman, who like is just an absolute cartoon of a character, but is based on a real dude who did these real things in front of everybody. This was not covert. There was a lot of things that were done in this trial on, on deeply on the sly in terms of tampering with evidence and juries and witnesses and everything. But there was a lot of other stuff that was just done in plain view. And every time you hear, you know, modern protesters and certainly, you know, coming to the subject of the current movement of civil rights of people saying, this has been going on the whole time. Y'all just haven't been paying attention. This is the kind of thing that they're talking about. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I think even today, my wife and I, like we, we mentioned it frequently now, just about how the world kind of woke up to this in 2020. It's yeah. kind of like, oh, yeah, you, you finally, you finally showed up. And <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons I think that this film um, has a lot of ties to, to modern day, even though it may not be as effective in its thing is you look at it from a lens of, of protest and activism. And obviously that's, what's going to draw everyone through. But I think for me, the real telling moment, and I think where people should really kind of connect with is judge Hoffman. Mm -hmm. And you look at the outlandishness that judge Hoffman did and you think, Oh, that can't happen, but that's always been happening. And I remember, I think it was listening to season three of serial when they were looking at the judge, judge system in philadelphia okay and they had some in-court reporting where you would see how they were tr- um some of the judges would talk to the accused and predominantly black men and women and just the kind of degrading way the way how people's rights are being taken away and we're, we're in a time as we record this you know the presidential elections are going on and everyone's talking about court packing and oh is the supreme court packing is, is that a big issue and i'm thinking you know that's the media is kind of focused on that what's going to happen with the supreme court like that's not the real issue the real issue for the last four years of this trump administration wherever side of the the law you stand on your political views is that the republican party have been stacking the lower level courts with judges yeah but not just stacking them with judges, stacking them with judges who are incompetent, mm-hmm. who their own associations, legal firms have said, this person has like a 42% rating. This person has never been a, a lawyer in a case. Yeah. You know, they have the law degree, but now they're a judge for life. Like that is where the the real horror of the Trump administration is going to be. And I, and I say, regardless of what side of the, the voting aisle you stand on, because if you're in America and you commit a crime, you're going to have to encounter these incompetent judges yeah. for the next two, three decades. You know, that's where you're going to start to really feel the impact. Not only that, like, I mean, that that's a great point, but not only that, but like the, the, the truth of the matter is the Supreme court chooses which, which motions they want to hear. Like they hand pick which, you know, disagreements that they want to listen to. So, and, and there's a lot, that is petitioned to them to listen to that, that they choose not to listen to. Most of this stuff stops at the state level before yeah. it gets up to the federal level. And even before the state level, when you even just get into the local level, that is when you get some supreme incompetence. Like I'm reminded, there's two that jump to mind. I'm reminded of the trial of Ted Bundy, where 
the judge actually said in his comments, Mr. Bundy, you look like a really clean cut individual. I know you you had a law degree. I'm really sorry to see that you're here. And you say to yourself, why the shit are you sorry to see that this guy's here? If you know he's there because he did this terrible, terrible thing, you know, why are you putting that into the record? Number one. Number two, you think of a judge like the judge of Brock Turner, who looked at this story of, you know, uh, of sexual offender put in front of him and thought to himself out loud, this is a clean cut good guy who's about to lose his life because of one mistake. It's like, you know what? That one mistake, really big mistake. You know, these are the people that have more effect on the day-to-day lives of the grand portion of the population of America. And, you know, like not even getting into how they will punish people of color like that. And that steers us into the story of Bobby Seale, which, okay, the story of Bobby Seale, first of all, could be a movie all its own. I would recommend people watch, uh, was it the Black Panther's? vanguard of a revolution i believe it's called where they they kind of go into depth in all of those characters but i don't think there has been or at least a a memorable Bobby okay. Seals movie. yeah I was, I was gonna say so uh google is my friend apparently there was one about him by mario van peoples um called panther back in 95 but i oh, you know right it, yeah right. it so you know it I, it did not get a whole lot of exposure back then i'm curious to go back to it yeah. now and see what it's like but bobby i Seale, don't remember that being very very big strong film. okay yeah um i'll still give it a look because you know now that i'm down this rabbit hole why not um but bobby seal in this movie and bobby seal as as a part of this story is a fascinating b difficult to balance in the in the course of this overall narrative but c certainly the most compelling part of this story um, helped in large part by the way Yahya Abdul-Mateen plays him. Like this guy is on a bit of a roll between this and Watchmen and uh, you know, those two parts really coming in quite well. That whole end of this story, like I really truly believe that could have been a movie all its own. To me, that will move the needle the most for people. But I feel that because of just how he's thrown into this case and then kind of thrown out by the time people reach the end, they'll, they won't they'll feel comforted enough that they won't have to think about those horrors because what he went through just being you know associated with the black panthers and that's why they threw him in and he was already on charges for was it I think attempted murder or something in yeah. Connecticut which he didn't do but whatever they they're, they're going to try everything they can and the the way that they emphasize to the jury about you know his association with black panther and the Fred Hampton part and how you know they made it clear who Fred Hampton was. And I, I will give Sorkin credit for this. I I was wondering how he was going to handle the death of Fred Hampton. And I'm glad he, they, he didn't gloss over it. Like, I'm glad he used Fred Hampton's death to bring out a really emotional scene where, as stoic and as tough as Seals tries to be, you could really see he's trying hard to keep it together, mm-hmm. knowing that the weight of Fred Hampton's death is on him and i like that you know they they didn't go into too much detail but just the notion they make it clear that there's no way fred hampton could have been involved in this shootout the way they they claim it because i think if i remember correctly it was a sting setup what have you but 
they kind of, I think they came in almost like Breonna Taylor, like no-knock warrant, whatever, right. guns blanding. And they, they really worked hard to sell the narrative that we were just innocently doing our job and these people started shooting, what have you. So I liked that he makes it clear that it wasn't how the media reported. Yeah. Um, and you kind of see the the impact of that. But even what happens to, to SEALs physically and how he's brought back into the court bound and gag and everyone's just kind of sitting there expected to proceed as if nothing's happened, right? And the judge is is fine to let this occur because he doesn't see him as a person. Like, I think that is probably the most powerful moments of this film. Um, and I'll also say maybe the, the, the sequence during the uphill conflict mm-hmm. where the, the frat boys start attacking the woman in Broadway yeah. and of course they nothing happens to them whatsoever right. they don't get arrested and whatnot like i think those are the most telling moments about how america has kind of treated its civilians and depending on who they are the type of treatment they get in the legal system those are certainly the moments with the tightest thread to the the current state of the nation um i mean you know like when you want to ask yourself about how a person of color is being treated in a courtroom in America. I think the movie goes there really quickly when they underline the fact that seal has no attorney present and the trial is just going to go ahead anyway. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is, that is beyond absurd. And I mean, you know, the, Props to William Kunstler, the, the the attorney played by Mark Rylance. He, like, at the beginning of the movie, he leans over to him and he's like, I am not going to tell you what to do. I am not going to impose myself upon your better judgment. If you need me, I am right here and just say, I need you. And, like, that, that is a guy who gets it. You know, that is a guy who says... I know that you're here under different circumstances and I am not your attorney and that you have an attorney, you know, that I don't want to overstep the bounds of somebody else who, who does what I do, but they're doing it for you. But I will help you if you ask, you know, meanwhile, this judge is up there saying, well, first of all, no attorney. Mm, sorry, tough luck. Oh, you want to represent yourself? No, you're not going to do that either. And that's the thing is that seal stands up several times saying, I want to ask this witness, this witness some questions and the judge keeps telling him, nope, sorry, sit down. And all of that, I mean, that's the thing is, that could be a movie all its own. Really. Yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating, and it's so well done at, at every level. But the movie has a whole lot of other things to do. And I feel that we need, we've had a lot of courtroom dramas, um, where you see from the defendant or the prosecutor's perspective, defense lawyers, I want to see a bit more films about judges um, and how, you know, the good ones, the bad ones, how they go through the process, the, the ramifications that they experience, I guess for a lot of them, they're what their jobs for life for most of them. So yeah, you don't get that, but often judges in films are, are either shown as like the, the staunch uh, immovable object or the, the buffoon. And I'm thinking they have so much power. There is so much ramifications to their decisions, but yet we don't see it's either they're being disrespected or they're, you know, not showing people respect. Like it's just, they're always one note Mm -hmm. in cinema. And I feel like we need more for people to get a better view of the, of the, the legal system. You need more of that. Um, this, 
a film I watched right after this that just dropped on Prime was called Time, and it's a documentary about this family dealing with the prison system, and it shows how you know one, as you said, one mistake could lead to experiences with judges and the law that has reverberations that go on decades and it's a really fascinating film and even watching that i i wanted i kept thinking like we need more films that kind of expose the flaws in the judicial system from a judge level like we always see it from the lawyers it's like how you see people keep saying now that we need to kind of reshape how we look at cop shows and um movies about cops in terms of them either being heroes or being celebrating the dirty cops and i was thinking well we also need to start reimagining how we portray judges because someone like judge hoffman is a toxic character he in many ways he's the real villain of this particular piece but he's a villain that has been state ordered i gotta admit the like what you're bringing up is a really really good point because this film takes great pains along with the fact that they just paint him like a buffoon and rightfully so Mm -hmm. it takes great pains to show the way a judge can affect a trial right like you would think that a trial has rules and you play within those rules but it's like no 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 no. the rules in a in a trial in america are really up to the whims of the referee and how he wants to interpret the rule book as a for instance when the former attorney general played by michael keaton is brought in and questioned the jury isn't even there because the judge says, well, you're going to question this witness. And if I think you've asked him anything pertinent, then I'll bring in the jury. You're like, wait, you can do that. You know? And, and that's, that's the thing. Like the, the, the film going to pains to underline this is really, really important. And you're right. We should see more stories about judges and how these referees are not just there to enforce the rules, but to interpret the rules. Yeah. And as, as someone who's, been on a, a jury I, I can attest to there's a lot of times when you're out of the courtroom hmm. where discussions are being had or things and you're spending a lot of time back in your little jury room box or whatever while they're hashing out things or stuff is being presented that they are trying to figure out whether or not is admissible to show the jury so yeah stuff like that the funny thing is this is me getting back to the execution of this movie and how it undercuts the power of the story is the scene where Rylance, as the as the defense attorney turns to the court reporter and says to her and it's a it's almost a throwaway moment mm-hmm. he says are you good because i'm about to test it and there's a really rapid series of questions responses um, objections and responses from the judge and it's this really quick rat-a-tat rhythm. And you can see why he's about to ask the, the court reporter if she's going to be able to keep up with it all. And the film really underlines how frenetic that whole moment is. I look at that and I'm like, this is a screenwriter and a director at the top of his game that trusts the moment. Yes. But I then double back and I think about the two scenes of the riots. Where, where violence begins to build up and how they're treated almost like a music video. You know, there's this really grinding rock guitar under each one. And it felt like it was forced. It felt like Sorkin didn't trust the horror of the moment and, and the actual chaos that these moments were 
that he could put them in with either a, a more appropriate score or even no score. You know, like that. When I think about some of the most affecting violence I've seen on on cinema, I think about moments where there was just dead silence underneath, and he didn't trust it enough to to let the chaos play. So that's it's moments like that where I'm like, this movie's good, but it really could have been great in the hands of a better filmmaker. I think it's actually ironic that this project was originally in the hands of Steven Spielberg. Uh, back in 2007 and he had to back out when the writer strike came around um, because I feel like when I look at Mark Rylance certainly as a guy who he brought amazing things out of in movies like Bridge of Spies I think that like this story in the hands of a director like Spielberg even with Sorkin's script would have been a better product in the end the image of the cops removing the badges and any type of identification yeah that's good that's a good powerful image like even just that shot at the beginning you didn't even need to see it come back later because that was still stuck in my head mm-hmm. throughout and then by the time they brought it back to it, it was like oh okay here's the moment but even that kind of gets glossed over like i was thinking that should have been treated with the same reverence as some of the others right like there's certain times where he focuses on you know people's heads getting cracked open or women's top being ripped open and then there's other moments where you think okay, this is going to be pretty traumatic. And it's just kind of, all right, They you see them all bandaged and bloody afterwards. So yeah, I felt like there, there could have been ways to have handled that better. And to, to that point, I also had issues with the female undercover cop mm. because I felt that she was another example of, well, she's just doing her job. You know, we can't um, chastise her because when she was on the stand, she admitted that none of them had actually incited the violence. Like, you know, the, the someone else screamed, go forward, or what have you. Right. But when really push came to shove, and she could have said something, she looks over, and they kind of give her the keep your mouth quiet. She goes, well, you know, the cops were just doing their job. But at the end of the film, she's like one of the kind of cheerleaders. Like, yay, he's giving his, listing all the names right on. Thinking, yeah. Oh, you're part of the problem. I mean, the other, the other example that you, that you touch upon when you talk about somebody who, you know, wants to be painted as part of the solution, but really actually is part of the problem is Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Richard Schultz, because here's a guy who starts this movie and ends this movie disagreeing with the action. When he's first hauled into the district attorney's office, he says, well, you're paying me for my opinion. And my opinion is, this is a bad idea. And he even just looks down the list of names and he's like, are you, you know, the people you're handing me, this is, this is an all-star team. And I don't think that we're going to be able to hang this on these people for this reason. And the, the sitting district attorney is like, well, you can do your job or I can find somebody else who can do it for you. You know, and he just, he goes ahead with something he obviously disagrees with. And then he turns to his boss when they're out in the corridor and he's like, this is wrong. And this is going to be a circus. But he goes ahead and does it anyway. And then at the end of the movie, when they're reading the list of names of the soldiers that have died since the trial started, he stands up and he turns to his boss and he's like, I'm standing for the fallen. Great. Way to go, Schultz. Meanwhile, in the middle, you did something you knew was wrong. You know? And this is the kind of thing. It's like, you don't get part marks for this. You're either on the right side of history or you're not. You You can't just lean in and you know like i'm still in bounds when you catch the ball because 
we're going to remember what you did in between those two moments. And that is something that you're going to have to answer for. So I like that this film does that and certainly does it with the cop that kind of gets in with uh, Jerry Rubin, who we haven't even really talked about Jeremy Strong in this movie, but we'll be here all night talking about him. Um, you know, it's it's crazy because you're right. I'm happy this film exists. I think it will entertain people. Uh, I'm just coming at it as a critic and saying it's messy and it could have been better. But at the same time, I like that it makes a point to do these things, to, to point out that Schultz disagreed at the beginning and disagreed at the end but in the middle he went along with it you know i like that those things are there yeah it's 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 not a perfect film uh, it's it'll bring a lot of people who didn't know that this occurred uh attention much needed but i i feel also as much as i it was entertained by the film and i think people should see it i think we start we need to start making films about more recent examples you know there's a, there's a lot of stories that could be told and I should just, be told should be told. And I, I wonder if like, you know, so a, so a person like Spielberg, of course I could see him going to Sorkin and saying, I want to make something about the, um, the Chicago eight, you know, because he lived through that. He, he remembers it fondly. But I'm thinking, but there's so many other examples that are closer to home. And w this period that we live in with the pandemic and the um, black lives matter, social people is going to be fascinating to see how cinema treats it in a couple of years because you're already seeing people who have been awakened to systemic injustice already going okay i'm getting a little tired of always talking about it. it's thinking well we've only been doing this for what six months yeah if if that and if you're tired of of talking about it or hearing about it imagine what it is like for a person of color to live it yeah for 10 15 20 in my case 40 years right like you just you know there's there's that kind of wing and i think part of the reason people are tired is because they haven't you know once you start feeling more films and more media that actually shows it where and you know kind of puts them in that place where they go oh this is really happening that will change the, the narrative um we end our reviews here on the matinee cast with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep that you would uh courtney small uh if you could take something from the trial of chicago seven what would it be well we've talked a lot about a lot of serious and heavy issues so my souvenir is going to be a light moment that mm. i quite enjoyed and that was the moment where alan ginsburg was doing his chance <laughs> his yoga-esque meditative chance which the police took as war, war cry yeah. <laughs> war cry uh that moment was hilarious and what i also liked about it was it comes back again a few months later when all chaos is breaking loose and he's still doing the chance and you can see even jerry rubin is like come on like this is not the time <laughs> for this <laughs> My souvenir would be something tangible, and it's something I've seen before, so to see it come back, uh, I thought was really cool. I want Abby Hoffman's shirt, the uh, the Stars and Stripes shirt. The first time I saw it was, oh, uh, of yes, course, yeah. in uh, he wears it in Forrest Gump when he's uh, leading the the demonstration at the Washington Memorial. Uh, sorry, at the Lincoln Memorial. You see him in that Stars and Stripes shirt, and Sasha Baron Cohen wears it when he's doing his little like stand up routine. Um, it's a it's a you know, potent little statement to, to take it and wear it as a shirt. Cohen himself has used that 
him, you know, back in Borat, he had a similar type of shirt that he was using to make his point. Um, I wouldn't even wear it because I think it would look terrible on me, but it just, that's one of those things of history. It should be in the Smithsonian if it's not. Um, but I'd love to have that shirt. It's, it's a really, really iconic look. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Courtney Small, what do you give Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago 7? Sorry, I'm trying to think of like converting from the, the letterbox. I think on letterbox, I gave it like three and a half out of five. So Yeah, you're, so you're yeah. giving it a, that's a seven. So you're more like a three if you're trying to okay, convert it. So yeah, then a okay. three. I'm, I'm a little lower than you. I am at two and a half, which I think is really where I'm at with this movie. Story-wise, great performances fantastic execution for my money for how for what i want out of this movie i'm being hard on it admittedly um so i'm i'm down to two and a half um still good still see it i usually find that those those nits that i pick with it they tend to get paved over over time so i'll probably be up to a three with you after like two or three watches but i I wanted a little bit more um hey maybe maybe you think that this is the best movie of the year maybe you think that we're being too hard on this maybe you think it's absolute garbage let me know ryan at the matinee.ca twitter where i'm matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee what did you think of aaron sorkin's the trial of the chicago seven we are going to take a quick break here but we'll be back with the other side right after this so come on back we'll talk about more movies Hey, welcome back. It's the other side. It's episode 245 of the Matt and Acast. He's Courtney Small. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about the trial of Chicago 7. This is the part of the podcast where we flip the record over and we talk about some further viewing, uh, maybe some better stuff, maybe some stuff that's uh, uh, associated with the with the same thing. Courtney, why don't you get us started? Uh, what's a title that you think somebody could go on to uh, after watching the trial of the Chicago 7 that goes along with it? Um, so... To further our discussion and to kind of keep the theme of um, modern activism and kind of comparing it to what we see in the trial of the Chicago 7, I picked the documentary Who Street, um, directed by Damien Davis and Saba Folania. Sorry if I pronounced her name wrong, but it's a documentary that looks at the Ferguson protests after the death of Michael Brown, and it's pretty much filmed the filmmakers are on the ground observing everything so you're seeing the from the activist perspective of what's going on and you really see a difference between how the media is covering the events of the protest and how they tend to focus on the lawlessness that breaks out at certain points but strategically ignore all the peaceful protesting you also see how the police treat the the protesters and similar to the chicago seven there are moments where they are inciting the violence there are moments where they are boxing in protesters that should peacefully be allowed to march and agitating them and kind of fueling the fire and ensuring that the media isn't there for that but as sun goes down and tensions get super high they make sure the media is there for all the chaos and i think it's a important film to see it's um it really provides people who want to i guess to better learn and better understand the activism that's occurring and how it's not all rioting and looting as you you see on the news i think who street is a very 
important documentary to see. And it's a good double bill with the trial of Chicago seven. Who'd you say directed it? Um, Damien Davis and Saba okay. Folania. Okay. Cause I, I, Folan. yeah, I, I called it up on IMDb and I was, I was a little confused cause it's whose streets with an S. Oh, I feel sorry, it's, streets. well, here's the thing that that's actually appropriate. Cause we're talking about a movie where, you know, one word is missed out of a declaration and it changes the meaning. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of appropriate. One of those things I always think about when it comes to fictionalized tellings of real events is it is getting harder and harder to compete with documentaries. When you were talking about more modern stories being turned into film, like let's get out of the 60s and let's kind of move the timeline up to what's happening now because these are really important things. The one thing that popped into my head is I would love to see a movie about Michael Brown and Ferguson because I think that that was a really important moment in the in the current state of civil rights because of the way the actual protesting is handled and covered and what happens. But even getting right back to how these things start, you know, and and I think that that is what gets lost by people of privilege, um, white people. Uh, it is these these moments of uh, of injustice. They're not simply harassment. Like harassment is bad enough, and and being stopped and frisked and carded and questioned and even detained. That's bad enough. But we need to really really underline to audiences of privilege that we're talking about lives being lost for nothing. The story with Michael Brown is that he stole something from like a convenience store. And, you know, like, listen, he's a kid for starters and petty theft happens. It's, it's unfortunate and it's wrong, but it happens. And it's not the kind of thing that deserves a death sentence, you know? And that's the part that needs to be put on the movie is people of privilege always come back to, well, why are we rioting and why are we burning things down? And why are we breaking windows? It's like, because judgment was passed because capital judgment was passed for something so frivolous. And those parts of the story, along with like, you know, the whole movement of say their names, like remember the name Michael Brown, as much as you remember Ferguson, remember what they did. Remember either wrong moment, wrong time, or remember the very, very, very petty crime that warranted a capital sentence by somebody who is not licensed to do so by the letter of the law in America. So when it comes to something like Who's Streets, um, I'd love to see a fictional film about that. I just, the only thing is I wonder if it can compete with a documentary. I think it can compete. I think if it's I hope done- it can compete. Yeah, I think it, it depending on who's making it, I think it yeah. can be done well. I I just I feel that studios uh, and I and I know streaming services are, are doing a lot better in terms of giving diverse voices and films um, a chance to to grow, but major studios are still stuck in that past where yeah. you know if you want the prestige film, it has to be told a certain way. And I I would say you know when I talk about things like Michael Brown or um, people who have been killed unarmed and everyone says, well, if they didn't do the crime, then this wouldn't have happened. Or if they had just respected law enforcement, I, there was something that I saw recently that, you know, I, I like to use as an example to put 
in perspective for people. Jim Belushi was on the Bill Maher show a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how he has this reality show about he, I guess he's he owns this marijuana company that's thriving in California or whatnot, and he was talking about how the reality show and just how his life is kind of gone different directions and you know how privileged and lucky he is but he also mentioned that he he thinks it's kind of weird that he's got this television show and this big company where a whole bunch of people of color have been locked up mm-hmm. or killed for being in possession of marijuana or selling marijuana when it was yeah. and he said that when he was younger he got stopped twice by the police for marijuana possession and nothing happened mm-hmm. he, he got a talking to he had to give up the marijuana and they sent him home right like these are the the type of things that people don't realize so when they keep talking about policing and how well you you just need to obey the law a lot of the times the people that are saying this are people who rarely have any interaction with the police yeah or if they do it's usually a favorable put the beard down. Like I can tell you how many people in when I was in university I saw drinking underage, doing drugs, and when I've been to parties where the police came to like break up a noise complaint. And I could tell you not one of the people who were not people of color, you know, no one got arrested. There was no altercation. Like it's, you know, it's fascinating. It, we talked about in the trial of Chicago seven how Hayden gets arrested and treated as completely different to um, SEALs. Yeah. Or, even better, David Dillinger punches an officer. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still arrested respectfully. Like, there, you know, this is what I think people don't understand because you're not used to seeing yourself or being in those type of situations. So it's easy to say it should be x because you've never actually had to experience x so yeah. i i feel you can do a microbound film a ferguson film they're gonna there's gonna be tons of films about the pandemic and the impact on people in the pandemic mentally romantically and it'll be interesting to see how people of color are portrayed Definitely. in those times and how we make these movies I, I think it can be done i just i think you need a a willingness to to do it and if you're gonna have people like sorkin write it you know or whoever hollywood decides to get like you know have the the stones to to do a more modern telling yeah well one of my movies that i'm gonna suggest as an other side is sorkin is still reasonably new to directing so i i thought back to his other project from i believe it's just two years ago or three years ago at most uh time is a flat circle these days so please forgive me if it's longer than three years um i went back to molly's game starring Jessica Chastain, and it's the story of a woman who starts running a poker ring that has some mob ties, and she gets arrested because, of course, they can't get the mob, so they get this one woman. And Sorkin wrote that, and Sorkin directed that, and it was his debut as a director. And I bring the other movie that I'm going to bring up is something I feel is better executed, but I wanted to bring this one up first. Molly's Game is really entertaining like if you want something to kill it's it's kind of longish like i want to say it's two hours and 15 minutes and you feel the time because it's very very talky he writes very long scripts it's a movie that is well done well told but i feel like in the hands of an actual director would have been sharper because he wouldn't necessarily have been in love with his own script the 
preamble to this movie is Molly talking about how she how she got there, like how she was growing up as a, a star athlete with Olympic uh, potential, and how she in her final um, trial to get into like to get into the Olympics, it was like U.S. Nationals. How she f- crashed spectacularly and basically like destroyed her already very destroyed spine you know it's a great scene in its own right but it is a very very long-winded way to open a movie and make your point and that's where i think sorkin needs to either be part of a team and and stick to screenwriting um so that he can you know play his part on the team or work with producers and studios who have the balls to say no we're in this very very strange place in cinema history where the names that make them are becoming very very difficult to disagree with and i'm looking squarely at you martin scorsese a lot of studios need to have the balls to start telling these men always men no you can't do that and here's why because at the end of the day there are so few films out there that are improved with more you know when it comes to working within a box and working as part of a collaborative a lot of these films work out better so molly's game is one that's good it's a good movie but again kind of like the trial of chicago 7 could have been a great movie if somebody had of started saying no to some of Sorkin's decisions, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I do I do quite enjoy Molly's Game. It's um, but yeah, there are. It doesn't need to be the length that it is. Um, they try really hard to wrap up the the daddy issues. So I, I agree that you know you do need more more no men instead of all the yes men. But but Molly's Game is actually a perfect example of what we've been talking about because she ran an illegal gambling ring. Oh yeah. And she still gets the redemptive story. Yep. She still gets to be the hero of the story. Whereas a Mike Brown doesn't get that obviously because you know, his death and stuff, but there, there's been tons of people that have done crimes for lesser, you know, or yeah. equal crimes and they're still in jail. They're not getting a movie made about them I, and i will use even um the wolf of wall street since you mentioned scorsese mm-hmm. part of i have some issues with that film uh i'm not gonna get into fully <laughs> I, it's it's fine yeah uh, but i have issues with it yeah but the fact that this movie gets made and i look and I go but this guy swindled a whole lot of people mm-hmm. out of money yeah and he still gets a scorsese movie with dicaprio and then gets dicaprio to record an intro when he's on his speaking tour selling a book like you, you you start to look at you know and people keep saying oh well it's a cautionary tale yes yeah but maybe at the end of the day, look at who's getting who's allowed to get those cautionary tales and who gets to still benefit from their their crimes later on like i think this is the mentality that we as cinephiles need to kind of start to adapt in society as a whole like yeah. when we start to look at all these films that we we herald and these tales of conflicted people or um, people that have done crimes but have been able to redeem and move on and we celebrate like who are these people yeah what do they look like what yeah. are their skin colors yeah. you know these are the things that you start to have to factor in. not saying that everything has to be about people of color but you 
you know, there needs to be more balance. Um, the other one that I came up with that I feel tells a similar story, um, but tells it better from the perspective of filmmaking and technique is I went back to 1993 and one of my all time favorite movies that still has a lot of relevancy of what's happening today and what's happened to this entire century, really. Um, I thought about Jim Sheridan's In the Name of the Father, starring Daniel Day-Lewis as Jerry Conlon, um, who is suspected as being an IRA terrorist and brought in on completely false charges. So to give people the story, Ireland and England were really, really at odds in the 1970s, and terrorism just climbed and climbed and climbed. And England really having enough of it and having enough of trash pan like trash cans being blown up and bombs going off at football matches and in pubs started to really really clamp down on the civil rights of anybody who they suspected whether it be they like terrorist not a terrorist ira connected they would just find a way to hang charges on them and it, ev- it eventually climbed its way up to being he- held for an entire week without charge. You know, they could just grab you, throw you in a van, throw you in a locked cell and question your ass for an entire week until you either confess to something, managed to outlast them or, you know, eventually confessed just because you want it all to stop. And one of the core stories of this moment in history for England and Ireland is the Guilford Four, uh, led by Jerry Conlon. He was the most visible member of these four people who were arrested for this bombing. Um, Jerry Conlon was kind of the most visible because his father was brought in as an accomplice as well. And they served prison terms for a crime that they didn't even do. It's told so very, very well. Um, Jim Sheridan is a director who I kind of miss. I haven't really seen anything of his in a long time. Daniel Day-Lewis does his Daniel Day-Lewis thing, although it's it's amazing to see him doing it at a younger age and a little bit less showy than we've become accustomed to. Like I, I know that you're a big fan of um, Paul Thomas Anderson, so I feel like people, when they think of Daniel Day-Lewis these days, they think of Daniel Plainview. Um, oh, yeah. he, he's been doing what he's been doing for a very, very long time. So if you go back to something like In the Name of the Father and seeing him acting at such a young age, I don't even know how old he is in the movie, but it, but he's, he's really fresh-faced. Emma Thompson is in the movie as a really, really um, smart defense attorney who's trying to take up his case after he's already been um arrested like she's trying to get his decision overturned and it's this is the kind of movie i like to see about you know false charges and false imprisonment because it really spends the time with the people and gets lets us get to know them as people and how they got into this position in the first place yeah, that's a that's a good one, and I think Jim Sheridan also did in America. He did. If you want a uplifting and also sad film to watch during the pandemic, that's uh, that'll pull out your heartstrings. This has been an amazing conversation, and I'm so so grateful that Courtney uh, got up early on a Saturday morning. To, got up early. You have kids. You've been up for. I hours. got kids, man. I've been uh, <laughs> up for a while. <laughs> um, and join me. But that is episode 245 of the Matinee Cast. Come on back on Monday, November 2nd. It's November already. My God. For episode 246, we will be discussing Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. Courtney uh, is on uh, Cinema Axis on. Um, 
that shelf and of course on changing reels what do you got coming up that people can look forward to um i have a a piece coming out in pov magazine really uh yeah yeah, the props man i've been contributing to to that site freelance and they they have a print issue their fall print issue i have a piece on uh documentaries that look at black life and black activism but um specifically outside of the lens of police brutality Mm -hmm. um just showing that you know the black lives matter movement is much more than just police brutality like here are films that are many of which you can stream at home nice um so i've got that and i'm working on a new batch of changing real episodes i'm just putting the roster together and sending emails out to guests so you'll probably get a email from me nice. at some point in Can't the wait. coming weeks always have fun on your show and if people want to follow you on twitter where can they find you oh i'm at small mind on twitter very nice my site is the matinee.ca for more audio content you can find back episodes by going to the matinee.ca slash podcasting you can also find them on stitcher radio blueberry apple uh and whatever itunes is doing these days um spotify and there too google play as well and everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop if there is a podcasting uh, platform of choice that you use and my show is not there drop me a dime and i will put it there feedback on the trial of chicago 7 can be left in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca twitter i am matinee underscore ca or there's facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts mr small oh thank you for having me it's been a great discussion and again happy anniversary to you and your lovely wife thank you so much uh i'd love to tell you that we're gonna go out and paint the town but um i'd be afraid of what color the town would paint me back (laughs) for courtney i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee